What's up, guys, and welcome back to the Bitcoin Rapid Fire podcast. I don't do this show for the sponsorships, and as such, I'm very selective about which sponsors I work with. That said, when good companies with founders or teams which I know and respect approach me to work together, I'm open to collaborating. River and CoinKite, companies which help people buy and secure Bitcoin respectively, are two such examples. If you already know all about them, get right to the show by skipping ahead 70 seconds. If not, keep listening. CoinKite, first and foremost, makes products that help you take secure self-custody of your Bitcoin. Their flagship product, the Cold Card Hardware Wallet, has been a favorite of many Bitcoiners for many years. They recently took things to the next level with the announcement of the Cold Card Q1, which takes all the awesome features of the MK4 and adds a full QWERTY keyboard, QR code scanner, large LCD screen, battery power, and a ton more. Beyond that, the CoinKite store is basically Toys R Us for Bitcoiners. Seriously, if you're into Bitcoin, you'll probably want most of the stuff on there. Check it all out, including the popular Block Clock series, or reserve a new Q1 at CoinKite.com. River is the place to build your Bitcoin wealth in the U.S. In my humble opinion, regular dollar cost averaging is the most effective and stress-free way to accumulate Bitcoin. You just set it, forget it, and watch the sats pile up. No timing, no trading, just stacking. And River makes it super easy with their zero-fee recurring Bitcoin purchases. If you want to stack even harder, you can do so with their hosted mining rigs. And if you're a developer or entrepreneur, their Lightning service allows you to integrate Lightning payments into your applications without having to run any Lightning infrastructure yourself. The team is awesome. They're building the future of Bitcoin financial services, and they're in it for the long haul. Learn more about them and all their awesome products and services at river.com today. Mercedes, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. So uh, you were, we were connected via a mutual friend and, um, you know, basically I was told that, you know, I know this, um, you know, woman who's uh, from Mexico, I believe originally, and was kind of um, right. in the Marxist camp of things for a while, but uh, got orange pilled, went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, and now everything is different. And she's trying to you know, promote Bitcoin, broadly speaking, uh, as right. a result. Yes. So yes. <laughs> I don't know where you want to start with your story. I'm sure it's a interesting one, but why don't you uh, introduce yourself, you know, just briefly and then uh, start wherever you want to start. Okay, Jim. So thank you very much for having me here in your program. Uh, I followed uh, some of the discussions in Bitcoin because I find really, really exciting how promising is the future for society now. Uh, having said that, I try very hard to search different alternatives, including the Marxist approach. Uh, I was born in the purest, uh, Mexico is a highly stratified society, as most of the North-South societies. And I was born at the bottom. My grandmother was an indigenous woman in one of the really poorest um, villages. She couldn't even speak Spanish. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but in Mexico, we have about 64 to 68 uh, different uh, languages that wow. uh, in a derogatory way we call dialects, but in fact are languages. And that is representing the variety of cultures that we have within Mexico. Uh, each one with a its own uh, cosmovision, traditions, 
uh, practices and so on. So I grew up in the rural part of Mexico. Then my grandmother at um, early age, I was born when she was 15 years old. She was already working for seven years in Mexico City. She was sent to help her mother because um, her mother lived during the period of the revolution. We have a slogan, I don't know if you're familiar, but one of the leaders of this Mexican revolution, it's uh, Zapata. And uh, the slogan was land and freedom. The implication was for everyone, land and freedom. But the practice was that it was land and freedom for men, not for women. So women, on the other hand, I witnessed it through my grandmother, were dispossessed of everything. And as usual, um, they were the target of these men uh, who sexually abused them, whether right or left wing, what we call nowadays communists or Democrats or whatever. They used women as a target, as the weakest in the society to abuse. So I grew up surrounded by women and um, my mother was a single mother. And then I lived in, the, in my childhood in the slums of Mexico City, which is a very challenging, hard life. But at some point, I realized that English was the dominant network. And uh, you had to learn English in order to have access to what's going on in the world. So I did it in a very um, erratic way. But eventually I managed, I guess, because I ended up doing a postgraduate uh, course in, at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So cool. I work all the way through the educational system in Mexico. Uh, my first degree is on education. Then I dedicated the rest of my life to health. I have two master's degree, one in public health and one in community health. And the other, that's the one from the London School. So then uh, through the, the access to this uh, highly specialized international health, I became advisor to different governments like the Dutch government, the British government, the Danish government, the Swedish government, and different uh, governments in Europe. And uh, I've been living uh, there the, about 40 years. Uh, as a consultant to different governments to implement health services, mainly for women. And mainly for women because my mission, as I identify it now, I had to be born among vulnerable women to understand what they go through and to understand what they have to fight for and what how challenging, challenging life can be for them. So I have worked in over 50 countries in Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America. And um, I ended up working for the enemy for WHO in Pajo in Washington. And then uh, that was really crucifying for me because I was the head of a program that it was for women's health, gender issues and ethnicity, which meant I was responsible for the most vulnerable groups in the society. And my challenge has always been how to protect their health and provide help for them, which uh, in this uh, fiat economy, health is one of the best examples of how everything is a commodity, health included. 
and everything is distorted and how more and more we just saw it recently with uh, COVID. It can be manipulated politically, economically. So I realized about that because I was always working for vulnerable groups in society. And uh, I ended up my career for these international institutions because I thought there was no way that we could influence anything. Because at that time, I, I couldn't identify, although I was Marxist, I could see that the economy was the root of everything. But within the Marxist approach, there was a lot of debate. And I follow what we call the Gramscian approach. And Gramsci was very important in the Marxist theory because he presented the importance of not being dogmatic and not just seeing the economic structure as determinant of all the other layers in society. And he put uh, forward the importance of all the institutional network of society, meaning institutions like family, school, uh, work, religion. So all these institutions are responsible for programming us in order to accept the fiat economy as yes, that's normal. So at that time, the Marxist approach was the only way we could see. And I think it was valid, at least for all Latin America. I was part of the theology of liberation movement. And I was part of the, the priests for the people who were at some point in Latin America, extremely radical. We never saw ourselves wanting a government, but fighting a government because it was the dominant force controlling all the resources and creating poverty. So that's how I would describe my experience in society and in why some people still believe that Marxist ideology could be the alternative for changing society. I think for me, Bitcoin, I mean, it has been a, a long process, but it's been fantastic to see, for instance, the Robert Breedlove series with uh, Michael Saylor about money, because it's didactically is very well explained. And it also helps a lot to understand how we have evolved in the society uh, to the present economy that we have nowadays. Does that say to you something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh there's a lot to dig into there. Um but just to go to go way back to the beginning. Yeah. And I'll I'll preface this by saying I'm extremely naive about Mexican history and circumstance. I just I don't know much about uh the country, sad to say. But um you know what what was it like day-to-day -day existence in the slums that you referred to that you grew up in? And then what was it that allowed you to basically get out, you know, you, you said you followed English and that led to other educational opportunities. How yeah. did those educational opportunities manifest or how did you pursue them given that you were coming from such a position of relative deprivation or poverty or scarcity, yeah. you know, what, what, what allowed you to get out of that situation? Well, I see it like, um, Mexico, you need the educational system as a way to break through the different layers of society. And being highly stratified, that is documented statistically. For instance, uh, it's very clear that most of the children uh, that come from poverty extraction, they are hardly reaching primary school. That is the first six years of education. 
if you manage to go into secondary school three years and another three years of high school, a bit similar to uh, United States or Canada, I guess, mm -hmm. then you once you are in high school, you could uh, apply for entering the university. So I was very lucky to be um, decoding the educational system because it was very difficult. I mean, my grandmother didn't know how to read or write, so I could never ever ask her to help uh, the homework. For instance, I couldn't understand some maps. And uh, to, to say that is very simple, but that means that all of a sudden you are excluded from the educational system. You cannot continue if you don't decode the dominant culture. Because mm -hmm. what we teach at school is the dominant culture. To start with, Mexico uh, has as predominant language Spanish. All the education is provided in Spanish. And I was telling you previously that most of the ethnic groups, they don't speak Spanish. And nowadays, more and more, the new generations are trying even to forget the language of their ancestors because it doesn't have a value. So then they have to compete in the Spanish world. But then I realized that I had to compete in the English world once I reached the university level. So first, I was just following the little by little. Uh, it was very challenging. I had to start working when I was 10 years old in the way I could to pay my, my fees for, although in Mexico, by constitution, education, on, until nowadays, it's free and should be free. But the school is such a system that they ask you all kind of contributions that if your parents don't have the money, you cannot be admitted because you have constantly to provide, even if you are poor. Sometimes the extreme here in rural areas, parents are asked to provide building materials to build the school, for instance. Mm -hmm. If you don't contribute, your child doesn't enter the school. It's a very corrupt system, probably one, and that's another thing against uh, the Marxist ideology, the most uh, difficult thing to overcome in Mexico is the trade unions. And one of the most corrupt trade union is the educational system, which means uh, the lady who has been conducting or responsible as Minister of Education for this sector for many, many years. She is one of the most corrupt persons who has, to give you an idea, she goes to a huge uh, shop like, uh, one of the major shops in the United States in one of the malls, they close that shop like Bloomingdale's. It's not exactly that, but it's the equivalent just for her to shop. And that means money that should go in, into education of our poor indigenous children. That's what she spends in shoes and bags, for instance. Mm. It is the most corrupt the trade unions. So then you have kind of, uh, I guess my strategy has been to be very dedicated, work very hard in what I could decode that was the, the educational system, because of course you have to present exams. And if they, they don't validate your effort, it doesn't matter how much effort you have done as a poor child. But I was lucky enough to decode sometimes. Sometimes I got 10, but sometimes I got eight, and sometimes I hardly pass with six, biology, for instance. So then it, it's hard to penetrate the filter of the educational background. Once I was at the university, it's easier to identify that the academicians, those who are validated in the Mexican system, 
are the ones who have gone abroad for training, being uh, United States, the UK, or Canada. So I followed the pattern because I thought there's no way I can compete with them if I don't have these certifications. Right. So it was kind of a survival strategy and intuition, I guess. Yeah, well, that, that's I want to dig in on that a little bit more because, you know, when we grow up, um, I don't want to say regardless of our circumstance, but when you're a kid, you know so little about other experiences of other people in the world. You know so little about the rest of the world. Quite. There's a there's a type of normalization about your environment. You just think, oh, this is life. You know, I was born yeah. here, and this is what it is. And in a sense, you know, that allows you to make the best of it because you you don't have sure. something to contrast it to to sure. make you feel sure. very bad about it. But also, in a sense, it that's the the danger of being wrapped up in a bubble and not being able to see outside of your circumstance exactly. um, and and that has a lot and that goes a long way into confining you to your circumstance because you're you're not able to imagine bigger better different um more complex see well it's precisely you're as, just, as, as you exactly said. you're just describing something very important john this cultural bubble is imprinting you in a way that there's no way you can make a dialogue with other culture. And that's why Bitcoin for me is very relevant because to me, the adoption of Bitcoin, it has to be related to the variety of cultures. And within a culture, you could say the Mexican culture. Yeah, but that is read completely different by the dominant culture who writes history and by the all the dominated cultures that they don't have the chance to influence the course of history, but to have a say in politics. They are used very well nowadays by governments to vote, but that doesn't mean to have a say. And it's manipulated, and in Mexico it's badly manipulated, because now you buy the vote based on the needs that the poor people have, you calculate, how to buy the boat. So is the the minimum of freedom I think that we have reached in history nowadays. Mm. Just just for context, you know, for imagining your own upbringing, what what year yes. were you born in? I'm 1949. I'm 73 years old. I'm going right. to be 74 very soon. Oh, well, happy soon to be birthday. But um, <laughs> you know, another part of that question I was I wanted to ask you is, or it's kind of an extension of that, but, you know, well, I'll use my example uh, as yes. a, as a contrast or to kind of prove the point. Like when I grew up, I had different models within my family in particular. Right. And so yes. I had my grandfather and I had my aunts and uncles and I had my parents. And of course, when you're a young kid, these are the ones who you primarily model because you get the most exposure to them. And so I yeah. see my grandfather as literate as an entrepreneur as you know all of these things as type of ideology culture style demeanor all these things and i yeah. understand those to be they're normalized for that reason right and so yes. as a result of course i tend toward pursuing those things more because they're more known to me and i i place that expectation on myself well of course i should be literate my grandfather my mother my uncle and they're all literate so to fit into that at a minimum i should pursue those things Correct. But as you yeah. as you were describing, your your grandmother, you know, couldn't read, right? Couldn't that, speak Spanish at all. Right, couldn't, couldn't even sp speak Spanish. And my mother right. couldn't read or write and right, learn exactly. to speak Spanish, yes. And so what I'm curious about is given that 
those attributes would have been at least in, in, to some degree normalized to you. Like, oh, what a big, what's yeah. what's the big deal? She can't speak Spanish. She can't read or write. I mean, this is, yeah. you understand that to be the world. What was it that caused you again to kind of know that you had to broaden the circumstance or like to see beyond that so that you could pursue the things that you ended up pursuing and, and end up seeing that pathway and decoding everything in the way that you articulated to say, oh, if I want to transcend my circumstance, if I want to, you know, go beyond, I need to maneuver a path differently. And I can't necessarily model the people that were closest to me in my, my early upbringing. Like, do you, can you identify anything that allowed you to see beyond the bubble of your circumstance? Yes, because uh, there is a French sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu that uh, in my mind, I think he clarifies very well what is about uh, the whole evolution as individual. You don't depend only on financial circumstances. So financial capital is something, but cultural capital is as equally important. So the way you describe your, your upbringing is when you are interacting with other peers, you go to schools that have similar values to your family mm. and similar history to your family. So then you can identify as a group. And that's what Gramsci was very important in Marxist terms because he was saying education, for instance, is a way to create our identity. The, the, he calls them apparatuses so the institution of education, the institution of church, the institution of family, the institution of work, they are imprinting your identity step by step. So what happened to me is, of course, I have a contradiction between what it was the dominant ideology, what I learned at school, and the reality of my, my family. I couldn't even uh, classify my family as family not even as dysfunctional family, because there was no family. There was no father. I never had a father. My mother was abused when she was 15 years old. I was born when she was starting her teenage. And I, I was facing by, as a matter of fact, that I had to help my mother. So very soon I became my mother's mother because she couldn't count. She couldn't report basic things. So then I had to learn maths to calculate for her and tell her, okay, uh, they gave you this money and now you spend this in these tomatoes, in these hot peppers, and now this is the left. The remaining is such amount you have to give it up. So she couldn't uh, add up quantities, for instance, because she was completely alien, as it is uh, very recently 50% of our population in Mexico. And those who have gone to school close to primary school, they are what we call functional illiterates. Mm. They go to school, but they don't know how to write or read. Yet what? they decode the culture because I grew up also with another woman that was uh, a, a very, very poor woman, but extremely clever, probably for me, the cleverest woman I ever met. She never went to school. And I was living with her when my mother was working during the day. And she asked her, she was her, her, her sister-in-law, and she asked her to take care of me while she was working. But from her, I learned a lot. And she could, for instance, read the buses in Mexico. In Mexico City is quite a jungle. So she was able to decode what bus out of 20 buses could take her to some place without being able to read. So the bus says the name of the place where you're going to, 
But if you don't know how to read, what I found is that she found another way to decode the bus that was taking her to where she wanted to go. I am saying this because poor people, it's a mental state as well, not only poverty, but also they are extremely clever in practical terms. They don't go about philosophy, uh, philosophy or history or they don't care. They can't afford to care, but they have to solve their pragmatic daily life and they can be extremely clever. When I listen to some of the Bitcoin community, I think, well, they sounded to me very patronizing or very condescending because they don't have a clue what poverty is about. Yeah, And many poor people manage to be extremely clever despite not having... Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, it's not a dysfunctional family. There is no family. But it's a group of people that are sometimes passed by or imprint you with some way. And you have to find your way having a father or not, or having an uncle, or maybe having a grandfather, or maybe having a grandmother. So I have studied a lot of communities in Africa, communities in Southeast Asia, communities throughout Latin America. And what happened is... Of course, before we have a community life, for instance, in Africa, it's predominantly extended family. And you have the tradition of the tribe that you're studying, what keeps some kind of glue in these children that are born families, I would say. But you provide some support for them to grow up. So poverty has its own mechanisms and its own um, ways to networking in order to care for themselves. In Mexico, very recently, there was the community. Still, I'm living now in Merida, in Yucatan, and I study a lot the Maya culture. And still, you find some remnants of community life that people try to support each other, help each other, and still some glue provided by the language, sometimes by religion. So they, they are trying very hard to sustain themselves in a reality that we might oversimplify under the concept of poverty. But poverty has many, many aspects. Absolutely. Um, final question about yeah what we've been discussing, but was it your mom in recognizing her educational deficiency that in some way wanted you to gain access to some form of education when you were young? Or was it this lady you mentioned who, through spending time with her, just got your kind of educational machine brain moving and then that inspired yeah. you to seek other ones? They, they didn't have a perception of the education system having a value. It's difficult for the poor people, if they are adults, to see a value in something they, they don't know about. So school is kind of mystify, poor people know that, yes, it can take you out of poverty. But in my case, it was not that because women are not as clear as men how important is education in terms of escalating the different layers of society. And the way out of poverty is, generally speaking, in Mexico, or used to be, not anymore, the school. And you have different schools. For instance, you have private school, where the British call public school for the upper class people, of course. And you have, uh, for the poorest of the poor, the government school that is disastrous, that if it's COVID, they close for two years and the children are left without anything. Mm. So then 
I, I was placed in this value in the school because I'll tell you the story. Maybe that's why I, I think it's a, something unconsciously. I used to help my mother since I was tiny little selling whatever she could find. In this case, we went to a, a, a factory of biscuits and then she bought all what is the, the remnants of when they shaped the biscuit. So that's, of course, cheaper. And I could uh, get a bag, a huge bag, and then prepare some kind of a wrapping play. See, it was a, a wrapping um, kind of bag that I did myself by hand. And then I put these um, remnants of the biscuits and I went to sell them outside the school. So I was selling this and the children, when the school was over, it was in the afternoon, the children came very happy, shouting, laughing, and they, they opened the door of the school and all these kids were so happy. And then they were, of course, buying me and I was very happy making money. And then I arrived to my home and gave the money to my mother so we could have something for eating the next day or maybe that very day. So I guess my association was there is something inside of the school because these children come out very, very happy. But I never made the association that they were happy to be Fred. <laughs> so most probably that, that contributed a lot. So funny how in this case, perhaps a kind of delusion is what ended up like yeah. spark, sparking, you know, your mind or your imagination to go in a particular way, you know, you kind of misread the situation, true. but it yes. allowed you to benefit tremendously. Yeah, I really like wanted to go illusion, into that school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what, okay, so when did the, because I'm sure we could spend lots of time on on your, you sound like you've had Tell a very interesting life. <laughs> no, I, I will, but I'm not at all. Um, when did the kind of, so you grow up in, in poverty and so you're in, you you know, you're intimately aware of the deficiency of the so-called system in providing yes. for everyone on equal yes. terms, let's say, or you know what I mean by equal terms, equal opportunity, let's say. Yes, um, yes. So when did the, when did you gain exposure to Marxist ideology? When did it become appealing to you and how did you, mm -hmm. I don't know, adopt it or implement it in your own life? It was at a very early age because I, I was, um, Mexico is, is meant to be 90% Catholic in, in official terms, in practice it is not. But when I was in secondary school, there was a very advanced Jesuit who created a movement for the students. And we had a terrible situation in the 68s where the militars killed many, many students. And then the, the Jesuits- Why did they do us, that? Uh, the 68 movement was kind of throughout the world. Like, for instance, in France, it was the same. It was like a rebellion of uh, of the status quo and the governments being so repressive. And they, they, the students were asking basic rights, but the government just decided to kill them through the military. And they, they had demonstrations. Basically, we were always trying to claim a more equalitarian society and uh, equity in terms of opportunities to different things like education. Um, but the government responded with military action. So he, it killed many, many students. But at that time I was part of this Jesuit movement. We had this theology of liberation, 
So um, the most conservative part of the church identify this as communism inside of the church. But in fact, what ended up being is we wanted to be more genuine following the Bible and what the values of the Bible represented. And we wanted a fair society and uh, that was seen as, as dangerous for the dominant church as well. So, so then- it's kind of kind of this, you know, long-term tension between the institution and the the word itself basically yes yeah um, may, is it this the, theology of liberation is that something it's, that you could explain as yeah as... it was a very strong very powerful and important movement from latin america because uh it represented that the church by first time it was paying attention to to equity and equality. So they, they ignore that because the Catholic Church is if you are poor, well, tough luck, you were born poor and be nice even if you are poor. And if you are rich, so we welcome your money and yes, you will be saved if you pay for that. So then for that, uh, being the church in Mexico when you have indigenous people, well, for us, it was very clear and that happened in Latin America in countries like El Salvador or in countries like uh, Brazil, of course, um, Peru. It was a very important movement uh, with these very solid uh, the theologians who were supporting this kind of synthesis between Marxism and, and the, the mainly the Catholic culture, but trying to put together the Bible and its values with the Marxist approach as I think we saw it as a method to accomplish equality, mm. but we never saw it as, yes, Marxist mystifying government, let's put another government in place. Because uh, Marxist, I mean, it's very easy, as Foucault said, to judge from the present to the past. That's epistemology. We mm. always think, oh, because we now have more so truth than we, yeah, we're so smart now, and then we invalidate all the past. And I think we have to see at the historical context that was prevailing. And at that time, for Latin America, is what is uh, defined. And I'm saying it's one one of these books that is um, recently wrote. I think. Let me see if I can find it in my notes. But it's like um, I was listening to the program that you have the Uncommunist Manifesto, for instance, that one. Mm -hmm. And I was listening, and that was prompted on me. It must be important to give them the historical perspective. I mean, we were stupid, but we were not that 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 stupid only. We were thinking that was the methodology to change the reality that we were going through. And they at that time, that was the only alternative offer. Of course, if you have now, and to me, that's the most valuable thing of what we are witnessing now, is we have in Bitcoin, the real alternative in the sense that is not is decentralized mm. it's not uh, manipulated by some government by some elite group by some economic power and and that's that's unprecedented because never we had that before yeah. but at that time that's the best we could we could have and uh looking at history is is one of the the books that has been written let me see. So sorry because my my notes were here. No problem. While you're looking for that, I'll just 
is it fair to say that the combination of what was understood to be Marxist ideology and understood to be this theology of liberation within the Jesuit order, yeah. let's say, was seen to be a response to the just dramatic inequality that was being experienced in you know, your experience of Mexican culture and, and those quite, of many others quite, of course, at yeah. the time. And it was yes, felt that yeah. that would help maybe balance the scales if it could be adopted more broadly, that type of perspective. It, no, exactly. It's exactly that. It's, I was looking at the Bitcoin, the, Bit, the Bitcoin standard. And then I was I was thinking about the fiat standard. So for us, it was very transparent in Latin America what had been done by the British government and by the American government while, uh, for instance, negotiating the First World War or the Second World War. I work in the United Nations. I know how it is inside. And to me, why UNICEF has to have always an American director? So it was a cake and they divided and then the economy was exactly the same. I mean, and so you have these two classes of, of uh, money the money backed up by gold and the money backed up by dollar, which is all the Southern economies. You know? So Global South is determined by North South. And for us, that was very clear. We call it capitalism because that was the term we had at that time. But what it was very clear to us is and all this inequality that we were going through in Latin America has its sources and how North and South are divided. So that, that's very clear. And is the financial domination what we were questioning? Maybe mm -hmm. we call it wrongly capitalism, but our movement was about that, about fighting this financial system that was dominating Latin America, where United Fruit Company was not only a company to bring bananas in, it was also to influence political dynamics within Latin America and working with intelligence together in the U.S., to target people who were trying to question and change that situation in Latin America. And it was very easy to label them communist when they were not. Mm. So then that, that for me, is an important perspective. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I don't know too much about the United Fruit Company story, but I know that they were a force for evil, broadly speaking, in much of Latin America in terms of how they dealt with dissension yeah. to their practices and and things of that nature very much kind of like a colonial company coming in and just saying totally this totally. is ours yes. now you work for us and if you disagree yes. we'll uh -huh. kill you basically and i know there's there was yes. many instances of that but it's interesting for you to say that the people on the other side of that would look at that and say "Ooh, capitalism bad because they construed that as capitalism and then of course from the united fruit company or the northern hemisphere side they would say yes. Oh well, we can we can dismiss them more easily if we label them communists. So exactly. communists bad, and they're communists, and therefore you just get a, a huge gulf in between. That's exactly what parties. was going on. Yes. Yeah, and and you know it's, and this is why I appreciated. I if you listen to the podcast I did with Alex, how they took time to get clarity on definitions about a lot of these yes. terms before uh, they go yeah. into the logic of them, because yeah. there's so much uh, misunderstanding around these. Yes these terms today and e even today you know when people um, you know let's say they criticize western capitalism or american capitalism they're falsely attributing the term capitalism correct. or free market correct. voluntary exchange yeah. to the us i mean you have a central bank that prints fiat currency so 50 50% of every transaction is a government product government owned government manipulated 
exactly. the government employs a massive portion of the workforce and accounts for a huge portion of the GDP. Yes. And you can you can go all the way down the line and say that is by no means a voluntary free exchange market. That is a highly controlled, centrally planned market. Exactly. Now you, now you could say that China is more centrally planned than the US, but you absolutely cannot say that they are opposites of you know ends of the spectrum. One is precisely, communism precisely. and one is capitalism. Yes, you know, and that's why it's precisely. so important to be precise in the in this type of language and you know as you're saying you know how at that time you saw the world as north south i mean i i think it's uh perhaps one way of characterizing that is just by virtue of the power you know military and economic power that the yeah. north had they could impose selective property rights on the rest of the world whenever they wanted to so they could go into a country and say your property is ours now in our country we yeah. We are more judicious with how we violate property rights, let's say, right? So we don't yes. violate them as egregiously. But in your area of the world, we have more power, might is right. And so we can violate your property rights more easily. And even whatever, and at the time, you know, people were having a lot of these discourses on which political ideology or philosophy was would be more conducive to a fair system without really the 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 capacity to control the power of like predatory property rights or selective application of property rights because whoever you put kind of at the helm of whatever system you thought would be a better alternative you're kind of vesting in them that power there you're vesting in them the power to determine property rights and this is one of the things that's so interesting about bitcoin right because now we have a system where everyone can gain access to the same form of property right and nobody is the one granting that authority you know, live outside so the, the central planning, which is very useful, whether it's communist or capitalist, because it's just ideology. And that's what I want to point out. Uh, poor people are surviving day to day most of the time. So they don't have time to philosophize right, or right. to, although they do have their ideology and their imprint and they respond to the programming. But to me, to take Bitcoin to the layers of society, massive layers of society that are in the most vulnerable financial situation, we have to do a work in order to translate for them uh, what is Bitcoin? Because it's very, very difficult to translate in an accessible way uh, the, this highly sophisticated mathematical model. Yes, maths is true. Is the first time we have that. It's fascinating. But until now, what I see is is again a bubble, is one elite that can decode. It's mainly men because again, women, and to me, women are the ones who are in most need to adopt that. And they will do so, provided that we are able to bridge this intellectual movement to the basis of society where women are surviving day to day and where they are busy trying to see how they bring food to the table and uh, how they, they provide for, for uh, the, their children. And to me, that's essential to do that work because nobody's doing it now. In Salvador, I follow very closely the news. I have worked in Salvador. I know the, the society. And um, it's, again, these middle upper class kids trying to teach poor uh, illiterate women or men how to adopt Bitcoin. And the efforts are very, very nice and uh, very plausible, but it won't give the result because you 
give the information to the vulnerable people, but then the most you can provide is one page of resume with a summarizing the key ideas. But once they get home, the reality is totally different. They don't have even a place where to keep one piece of paper. They don't have books. They don't have, not to talk about metal and these, these um, uh, basic things that they have to adopt for Bitcoin, isn't it? Like uh, I was thinking, well, if you think the, the 12 words, how you're going to back up those 12 words in terms of the population? They don't have a place where to store things, to work, thing, to keep things safely, because they, if you have work in a, in a rural place in Mexico or any place in Latin America, you will see that they have basic, basic things. Nothing is safe. And then just this little thing for me is the step number one, because I'm thinking, how am I going to enable women to keep security their Bitcoin once I convince them to adopt it? Because most probably they will say, yes, please, I don't have any alternative. And in the United States, I mean, they have all the advantages of this fiat society. They don't need to change. They don't feel the need to change, you see. Mm. You've seen it in Venezuela or in Argentina. It's so extreme, their, their situation that they have adopted, whether the government like it or not. But it tends to be the middle class because they are the ones who are able to decode the information. But what about the lower class and how are gonna check that some basic things like keeping their 12 words, we provide a mechanism for them to be safe and protected. If I tell the woman, now if you invest in Bitcoin, no matter if your husband becomes violent or arrives drunk or threatens you and sends you out of the house, you have your money. When you leave from the house, you have your money safe. She will adopt it immediately, immediately. But I have to provide all the practical steps for her to make it real, this Bitcoin, you see? Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll go, I want to go back to certain elements of you know your story in a second. But while we're on this topic, I presume you've given this some thought. What What do you think is part of the solution or at least a, a, an approach to making the case for and actually enabling this group of people, this demographic that you just referred to, to avail of the benefits of something like Bitcoin or of Bitcoin, well, not something first like Bitcoin. Of all, Bitcoin. Uh, I mean, in my field, I, I was telling you that, I mean, my expertise is in the health sector and in the gender specifically. And by gender, I mean, uh, it's, it's not a walk talk. It's men and women have a different uh, lifestyles, different bodies, different realities, and different challenges. And I made my career throughout the world just using this common sense. Because doctors, when they see, they see a patient. They don't see a woman or a man. But for instance, a woman can have a heart attack and she has pain in the back. It's a completely different uh, anatomically and biologically design of our bodies. So then for me uh, to dedicate my life to women's health was uh, a challenging, uh, always kind of uh, make me, force me to think alternative ways to enable these vulnerable women to protect their health and to improve if possible their health. Because once they lack health, the whole family will collapse because they are 
the source, the financial source for that family to survive. So the, the, the way I see it is women have to be educated in a way. I see women because men will do it. But men, even in the poorest uh, segments of the population, they are in public. I have studied a lot of disease, for instance, leprosy. And men have the opportunity to go to hospitals because they're mobile. Women are most of the time secluded in their houses. And not to talk about, for instance, Islamic women. They are not allowed by the husband to leave the house on their own or open the door if a man comes and knocks the door. So this is reflected in the patterns of morbidity and mortality. So uh, the way I see it is when, when uh, you have these layers of society that are so depending on surviving, you have to um, kind of penetrate their survival strategy for them to listen, for them to pay attention to your message, and for them to know what Bitcoin is about somehow. It's very easy. It's very simple because if you tell a woman, as I was telling you, it doesn't matter if you live in an abusive relationship. This is the opportunity for you to walk out of your house with your money. And that means you are self-sufficient, independent. And, and this uh, so-called uh, self-sovereignty or self-custody is completely different to the one you discuss in your programs for the people you invite to your programs because they can hardly provide a shelter for them. So then uh, once you convince them that for me, it's uh, the step that when they pay attention to that, like uh, governments like Salvador, they are doing it. But what they are ignoring is we need to do research. Nobody's doing it. We need to find out financially how women could adopt. I used to do that sometimes for years. Like if I wanted the Islamic women, for instance, to adopt some treatment in leprosy, I have to go through their culture. I have to involve the husband because the husband was the number one limiting the access to the treatment. And then her ideology in order to support the treatment. And it was a long-term treatment. So how could I sustain this for six months? I have to research because I don't know by heart. Sometimes they tell you the research, provided that you listen to them. But Bitcoin is arriving. Here we are with Bitcoin is the solution for everything adopted. And then we give all the information to them. But they, they might even want badly to adopt it, but they cannot figure out how because their circumstances are totally different to the middle class, to the upper class. So we have to research what could be the best way and what we could create in place in order for a vulnerable population to access some security uh, strategy to, to enable them to exercise self-custody. It's not just a jargon. It's not just a, a, a term that we use on interviews. It's just a, a practice, but they don't have the means. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm starting to do that. I'm interviewing women and then trying to identify what is the, the motive. For instance, obviously they know about inflation because they go to the market and they say, well, the beans, the kilo, the, uh, two months ago, it was this the price, now is this the price. And we have a saying in, in Mexico that we say, well, if you don't have enough, you just add more water to the beans. 
and they are saying, yes, we need to add more water to the beans. That's inflation for them. Mm. And they understand the concept perfectly well. I don't need to tell them inflation means like this, like that, and it's in economic terms, it's, and the Federal Reserve is printing more money, that's why we're poor. They don't care about it because they can hardly afford to understand that maybe the United States is in the north. For the ones who have migrated as workers, they have a better understanding, but about how they have to survive as workers, migrant workers. But they don't understand what is Federal Reserve, how the government uh, in America is elected, why is polarized more and more. They don't have a clue and they don't bother to, to inquire why. So we have to go to the reality, search the reality or research the reality. And I'm sure in most of the times they give you the solutions mm. because they, they have a pragmatic way to go through life because they don't have time to, to elucubrate or elaborate philosophically on things. Sure, sure. But, but has, they do have solutions, yes. Has the research you've done thus far revealed any novel insights around how might such people adopt self-custody, avail of the benefits of Bitcoin? So let's let's assume the the case, you know, the pitch is successful. Like you said, they they get yes, it. They adopted it, yes. Right. How what is the missing piece for at least the people you've been researching? How they might, you know, let's say custody 12 words in an environment where the materials are scant and they can't really uh protect it safely any form of material information like any 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 solutions thus far well i i think i was very curious about the, this uh, fediment fediment right. i think that the, it was created by jeff, jeff wood because um i think it's uh, an insight about how community could um provide some support yeah it's like a collaborative of, custody sort of solution. exactly and i think I'm just guessing, but I, I think it, in uh, under poverty, you need that. On the one hand, because they already, in many ethnic groups in, in Mexico, they do have this community approach still preserved, not entirely, but a bit of the community approach. I mean, for instance, realities like Central America, and that goes for countries like uh, El Salvador, Costa Rica. Panama, they are too close to the American culture. So they, to start with, they exterminated the indigenous people and there, there's no, there was kind of ethnicity cleansing. So there's no indigenous people left. So it's kind of middle class and poor people and then the upper class. But Mexico is highly complex society because we do have uh, the preservation of different cultures and no matter how culturally the Spaniards and all kinds of cultures have invaded Mexico, they resist. So we could build on this community survival strategy that they have. And maybe I was studying recently this fediment. The fediment is an alternative, maybe within these communities that, that we have in these very poor uh, backgrounds. But uh, having said that, Mexico City, for instance, is lack of identity. I lived, I mean, uh, I'm talking about 73 years ago, or maybe at least 70. When I live in Mexico City in the slums, there's no identity. You lose your identity. You are an immigrant, a poor immigrant, and there's no anymore this identity that is provided in the indigenous cultures. 
there's no cosmovision. You take bits and pieces. And um, the youngsters, even if they are poor, they are emulating the, uh, the American adolescent. Everybody wants to be American adolescent, uh, to consume what they consume, to behave the way they behave, and so on. So maybe it's going to be harder there. But at the same time, they want to be closer to the urban culture. So it might be easier to, to penetrate with the young uh, people. And I guess the youngsters are going to play within poverty a very important role because they are the ones who are digital. The previous generations don't have a clue. Mm. Yet some of them has been exposed to these smartphones. And then through that, they have learned. I, I'm surprised here how... Uh, in the poor population, I did some research in the time of COVID to see what kind of health services were provided for the poor communities. And it was in, very interesting to see how many, many of the, it's a generational problem, but many of the households adopted this uh, smartphone and knows how to basic uh, functions to use it. So I'm thinking, obviously, through these smartphones or iPhones, it's possible to do something. Mm -hmm. But it's something about, for me, it's about researching what is the technology offering and to bridge what are the circumstances of circumstances. the people in poverty, to see how we can bridge these two things together so that, that we enable them through some a community custody to have access to Bitcoin. Probably something like that. Yeah, well, that's a very noble effort. And, you know, so I guess thank you for pursuing it because I think that's the way, you know, one, obviously the circumstances are different in so many places. There's, there's similarities, yeah. of course, but I think it needs that sort of precise or customized approach to really figure out like, what the solution looks like for people exactly. in, in so many yeah. different circumstances. Because as you say, I mean, not everyone is just like middle, upper class, Western, you know, uh, and has access to all those, the the amenities or tools that they might have. Some people yeah. have literally no place where they can put anything of physical value and, and, and feel the security over it. So yes. what do you do in that case? And I think it's going to take people like yourself and, and others who, who, focus on specific circumstances and try to think about and research and then, you know, perhaps work with entrepreneurs or solutions in the space to really come up with something that uh, is appropriate for, you know, the people in those circumstances, whatever they might yes. be. Yeah. And, and, and also sometimes in poverty, you money is not as relevant as it seems for us. For instance, uh, I, I remember now a case in, in Mozambique, and uh, I was working with malnourished children, and this was extreme, extreme poverty. And these mal malnourished twins came by third time to the hospital. So I took uh, an in-depth uh, interest in finding why, who were the parents, why these little babies were malnourished by third time admitted to the hospital. And when I went to interview the couple, they gave me different answers. When I interviewed them separately, it was different. And one thing that struck me by the mother, and I, I asked her, it is because your, your husband is unemployed that sometimes you don't have the money to buy the things for nourish well the children. And she said, 
No, he's not paid by money. He goes to the banana plantation and he's paid with bananas. But you know, I have noticed, she said to me, that sometimes the bananas are missing. That means he's having an affair in other neighborhoods or communities he passes through with the bananas because many women want to get that. So I prefer he doesn't go to work because then I lose my husband. That was her conclusion. Wow. So it, it, it's just uh, so, so out of what we can imagine, don't you think? Yeah. And so because, by virtue of him maybe working less or her making it harder for him to work, the kids were having less nourishment? Less, like less nourishment because she, did, she wouldn't have the money to buy for. food. Yeah. She wouldn't have the money to buy food. Wow. That's but then a... she said, well, if I'm going to lose my husband, what's the point? I mean, it's a, and, and the husband was paid with bananas. I mean, with, he was carrying these bananas on, on his what back. Did, what did the husband say when you did the private one with him? When I asked him, he said, well, it was difficult to earn money. And uh, more and more, the people in Mozambique, as poor as they were in that region in Mozambique, I was in the northern part of Mozambique, they were paid uh, with a different uh, items. In this case, he was working in the banana plantation, so he got bananas. But he said, well, I, I don't have the money because actually they are not paying money to me. But he didn't disclose all the other part. And what was their... So he said, I don't have money to buy food for my two little kids. They were babies. And and what was... I mean, this not related to anything we've been discussing, but just out of my, out of my own curiosity, yes. when you were having these conversations with them and when they were basically saying they... They didn't have enough resources effectively to feed their children sufficiently to avoid them being hospitalized or or worse. What emotion was attached to them explaining that? And just for a little bit more context, you know, like if if I'm thinking about that, I'd be devastated by not being by yeah. forcing my children in such a situation. But I could e also easily see that if poverty is kind of all you've ever known and you've seen, like to our conversation earlier about your early upbringing, if these sorts of scenarios are, are relatively common when you're growing up, maybe there's less of an emotional response to it. Now, maybe not, but I'm just curious what, like what, it's, um, what kind I of emotions it, were stirred up when you were having the, those in conversations? The, in the, it's so tough, so tough, Jan, that I don't think uh, they respond as we expected. Because uh, in the, to me, the popular culture is a very pragmatic culture. They cannot afford some feelings that we have. That doesn't yeah. mean that they don't feel for their children, mm -hmm. but it's just that it's uh, there are so many barriers that, for them to to accomplish something that they don't react anymore emotionally. Sometimes it's just a matter of fact. Right, you had to accept and they reality describe in it. some degree. Yes, yeah. yeah, and they are also very pragmatic. There is this um, boy who in Mexico there are two or there were two predominant parties. And then I work in, in the communities in Yucatan, and many communities have been divided. Half of the population is one party, and the other is the other party. And one of the young boys, he was 13 years old, he told me, I am from this party. And then the next day I saw him, and he had a cup stating the opposite party. And I guess I reacted like a bit shocked because I could remember he told me he belonged to the other party. And then very clever, he said to me, 
I know, Mercedes, what you are thinking. I know I told you I'm from the other party, but a cup is a cup. I need a cup. <laughs> and I thought it's brilliant. It's, <laughs> as a matter of fact, they are very pragmatic. Don't you think? I don't have uh, time and I cannot afford to have an identity, even of my political ideology. I take whatever I can grab because I have to survive. Sure. Well, it certainly reveals, you know, the hierarchy of value or necessity in a given moment yes. because, you know, yeah. you, you make that choice and the choice is expressed outwardly. But, you know, I, I the point is taken. And as you said before, you know, and, and in some sense, even those that are amongst us that are relatively privileged, you know, so let's just say your average middle class person in the mm -hmm. West. Yeah it doesn't mean they're not subject to the same dynamic. They're just subject to it in a, in terms that relatively mm -hmm. compared to the ones we've been discussing that are yes. materially different, but yeah. still we, we all, and I'm, I'm sure we could think of many examples of, you know, uh, popular culture today or, or people that aren't aware of many of the things we've been discussing of how they, you know, lots of people are consumed with their work life, consumed with the necessities of exactly. providing for their family, yeah on the hamster wheel it's, and just know, they, they do what they need to do and the privilege of thinking about it's a different form about, of alienation it's a yeah, different form of alienation right, you're right you know so in relative terms the, the the person let's say in mozambique would would literally kill for you know uh, to be in the position of the other but it's still yes. they're still subject to this uh well obviously a certain pragmatism but in terms of you know what what do i value more what do i have the 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 luxury of of attempting to change almost in a sense, like how much should I just respond to the the nature of my environment versus how much should I think about uh, the circumstance more broadly and how fair that is or what I would, what my aspirations for it may be, you know, because as you said, I mean, in Bitcoin land, a lot, we talk about these higher order things, you know, the philosophy, the system-wide issues, yes, how Bitcoin is yes. gonna fix this, that, and the other thing. And I, you know, I, I, I'm one of those people. And I, I think that's tremendously important because I want a system that treats everybody, that gives everyone the same op rules, let's say, that get, that subjects everyone to the yes. same rules. And then you, you, you plug into that system and you're rewarded based on merit, let's say. Um, and I think it's important to elucidate the value of systems like that and the principles that are inherent in it. But obviously, there's you know you can't you can't dismiss, of course, the, the the pragmatism of just contending with your circumstance as it is and making the best of it, because you know that is obviously, if nothing else, more urgent than the the meta problem. It may not be ultimately exactly. more important, yeah. but it's certainly more urgent for feeding yourself and your family and putting a roof over your head. And you know, I guess I don't think there's any right answer here. I think for one of the reasons we're having this discussion right now is because we both think that, you know, you have to fix the micro problems too. You have to address the, the micro needs, but all exactly. the better if you have leftover capacity to address the, the macro needs, because our assumption is that fixing some of the macro issues allows those micro ones to be alleviated to some to degree. In, to fall into place. And that's yeah. exactly what I'm trying to tell you. I mean, I respect a lot your community and I find fascinating. I mean, I try to follow lots of things uh, that, that are presented in terms of uh, the Bitcoiners culture. But I, I was very interested in, in a recent program. I think it was uh, Jeff Booth 
the ego death in mm -hmm. an interview with uh, Robert Britlove, I think it was. And, and I found it so, so beautiful how he presents this ego death. Because it, I think uh, when we see this macro dimension, we see ourselves so history, um, economy, and so on. But sorry, Mercedes, there is I, you, another you, reality. You, yes, you glitched out for a second. I didn't want to miss that part. So you're saying when when we see, so I missed what you said. But you said when we see this macro dimension. Yeah, that that I I see the the Bitcoin community is taking for granted that from this macro analysis we're going to jump into micro and things are going to fall into place and that's my my concern I don't think eh, if we don't do proper research if we don't invite people who are developing this technology to think about how we could support these massive people because I really think um, the United States is so comfortable or people in the north are so comfortable. They don't see the need. I, I know my colleagues are most of most of them, a lot of them, doctors, middle class, upper class doctors. Mm. They think it's just nonsense to talk about Bitcoin and also it's my generation. But uh, when you go to the uh, poverty, I mean, people are desperate to get something like Bitcoin. So the change is going to be from the global south. I'm convinced about that. And within that, I believe, maybe because I have worked all my life with women, empowering women, and uh, I think it's a parallel with the health sector. The research I've done there, it applies to the Bitcoin adoption. In terms of I was uh, trying to work for adopting healthy lifestyles within poverty. So then now I am thinking, well, it's possible with a lot of information that we go, uh, we got from sociology, economy, psychology, and uh, these these is social cultural realm that we have developed in terms of scientific fields. There is a lot of information that could be used to adopt Bitcoin and to implement the adoption of Bitcoin. Because the first step, I mean, Salvador has good examples of, yes, let's convince them to adopt Bitcoin. But that's not enough because we need to provide some um, basic tools for destroying the barriers that they have and I think women are always the candidate for a transformation because they are the ones who provide for the family. So when you talk about financial issues, they will pay attention because they desperately need a solution. And this is the most fantastic opportunity for them. That's the way I see it. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also, as much as I'm you know, it's it's great to see things like a nation adopting Bitcoin as legal tender, let's say, because it's, you know, part of the narrative that we always expected and it's cool to see it play out. And I've been there several times and it, I, I, I think it's a piece of the puzzle that's, you know, uh, turning that country around and, and for the benefit of lots of people that were underserved and, uh, you know, all that stuff for a very long time. But it is it the is. case with Bitcoin that it, it, it's not only it shouldn't be top down, it just can't be for you to really yeah, own Bitcoin. Exactly. You have exactly. to own Bitcoin. You have to have yeah. exclusive access to a set of information yeah, exactly, that constitutes yeah. your property right over. And it. that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. what I think is fantastic because it's a mathematical model that is completely decentralized, but also that gives us as humanity the opportunity to evolve differently to uh, build a, a different self-identity 
a bit like Jed Booth was talking in this the the ego there, because I think we have to restructure really the way we perceive ourselves to be even more humble. All the religions go into some values like humbleness because we acknowledge this as a good value to have. Because mm -hmm. if we are guided by our ego, the Buddhist philosophy has shown us for thousands of years, it doesn't work because the ego is leading us everywhere and me, 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 and then the clap, clap, and, and everything is lost in the ego. So now we are forced to think carefully about how we re- um, I think we will redo our identity, ourselves, in order to be able to bridge what is needed to be adopted by the large vulnerable people, this fantastic opportunity that we have, we have that is Bitcoin, uh, uh, and uh, it's available to all of us. It's, it's beautiful, really. It's yeah. a beautiful moment in history. It really is. I couldn't agree more. And I, I do think, and this is one of the, the main topics of interest for my show, is in what ways will the emergence of this system and our adoption of it actually influence our psychology and our perspective and, and how we perceive ourselves right. and how we perceive the world. Right. And I do, do think that the example you just gave has been thus far, as far as I can tell, in the so-called Bitcoin community and will probably continue to be, if for no other reason, that when you subject yourself by adopting Bitcoin to a system where nobody gains nobody has an advantage over anybody else that in itself is a kind of humility yeah. because prior to that it's like well i exist in a system where i can accrue outsized gains by virtue of kind of bending the rules um i can accrue outsized gains to myself by virtue yeah. of bending the rules and that might not not even be conscious but there's a there's an underlying subconsciousness that 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 exists and when you recognize that now you're in a game where the rules are the same for everybody it's it's recognizing a similar worth in the other than than to yourself and i think it's somewhat flattening subduing or at least properly orienting the ego in a more healthy way in a more productive exactly. way in a more cooperative exactly. sort of way quite quite yeah yeah that's um, a perfect summary so i i if, if you if we can can we go back just i'm interested in the part of the story where um how like what was the evolution of your let's say, socio-economic, political philosophy from, mm -hmm. you know, the time that uh, liberation theology and, and Marxist ideology was appealing to you to the point where you became a Bitcoiner and presumably that changed to some degree. Like, was it, yeah. you know, kind of all in one moment or did it shift through the course of your life and your different experiences? I'd be interested yeah. in, in it was It was a more there. a process. It was throughout my life then I, I could see that um, the limitations, I was very fond of Michel Foucault. And Michel Foucault, it gives you the microphysics of power. It's a bit like the Gramsci. Within the Marxist tradition, I was not the dogmatic uh, stereotype because I always thought the different institutions play a role in, in keeping the status quo. But then with uh, Michel Foucault, it's, uh, I, I think it's a very, very important uh, philosophical contribution because he saw how the state was either using coercion or was uh, ruling by consensus. And then he depicted how consensus was established. And then he analyzes mainly three institutions, his education, uh, prison, and 
medicine and especially psychiatry within medicine. And then through that, I learned, because I studied very carefully this um, research he had done. And then he went into what he calls archaeology of knowledge. He went back. So instead of uh, saying, no, this is not valid, because now psychiatry has much more important knowledge than in the past, he said, I cannot assume that there is more true in the present moment than it was in the past. So he went to see how psychiatry had evolved. And, uh, and if you start to see how initiatable is just uh, shocking the way they were treating the patients, basically. But because it was under the name of medicine, they could have the power to do it. So Sounds Foucault familiar. is a very, yeah, exactly. So then, then I think he was very clear in terms of, well, maybe this microphysical power is as important of the economic structure. And he saw it very clearly by doing this research and studying carefully these institutions. So then I realized that, yes, I, I had to complement with what Foucault was describing. And I was working in the health sector and my first degree is in education. So I had to check exactly one. And my first um, master's degree is in social medicine. And the assumption there is that it's mainly the socioeconomic conditions that create the pattern of morbidity and mortality. And you see the interest of the hood companies nowadays. For instance, Mexico has altered completely its diet. And now we have diabetes and we're the first country in diabetes or in obesity because we have copied the pattern of consumption of the United States. So then and we had a perfect diet. So for me now, I'm trying very hard with the ordinary people to say, well, check how your grandparents were eating. And they say, oh, yeah, we forgot. And then we're having community gatherings where we try to recollect their history and value their knowledge. So that is one way, for instance, so that they feel pride in their own knowledge because they are in the Mexican society, they are considered the stupid, the ignorant. Those are the poor. And it's only the little ones who knows better. Mm. So then trying to to preserve these very good practices they have in the culture, but by the dominant culture has eliminated all these good practices. And we might as community in Bitcoin go to relearn from them because they are eating much better than we are because they are poor and they are close to, to harvesting and planting and we're just grabbing the supermarkets. So we don't know what we are grabbing. And we don't care. We cannot afford the time to care. So it, it is this kind of bridge. It's kind of we are coming back to where I initiated. So I initiated with my grandmother being a very poor person. But I remember I would be sent to, please bring some apples. Please bring some pears. Please plug an avocado. And I was going to the trees to get everything. And we were eating on the spot where the tree was producing. So it's... Of course, there was no money for fertilizers or... Um, Just pure goodness. Pure goodness and simplicity, because <laughs> yeah. if you see all the, the trend of doctors that are, are fabulous in the United States or in Canada, creating programs about how basically it's good lifestyle. And they are basically the message is we have... Uh, walked very far away from what we were as human beings. Mm. So now my grandmother used to walk barefoot. So now could be a fashion and we 
recognize the importance of walking barefoot mm -hmm. because the training shoes are not as we thought it was so good. Yeah. No, we, we are coming back to where we started kind of as humanity, I think. Yeah, I, I see so this a lot. I, you do? Yeah, yeah in, in, the, in Bitcoin land, I see it a ton. And I think, you know, there's probably many reasons, but two that I think are fairly easy to identify is one, when you get sucked into Bitcoin, not only are you learning about a new money, financial system, all that kind of stuff, but it, it seems to inspire a grander pursuit of truth. Now, there's some yes. selection uh, bias there because if that pursuit of truth led you to Bitcoin, but even, you know, maybe you come into Bitcoin because you think you'll get rich and then you end up staying because it's so fascinating. There's so much interesting yeah. ideology and different angles to it. Yes. It seems to morph into this almost a perspective or lens of truth that you can apply to other places. And, you exactly. know, whether it's food exactly. or whether it's physiology or whether it's medicine or whether it's politics, it ends up, you know, somehow giving you greater clarity around those things. Uh, and then, of course, by virtue of how, let's say you see that how the fiat system works, you see how it's all about refining things and maximizing yield and, you know, destroying the land basically and then the the sustenance that that produces destroys your body and it's this negative feedback loop between the two exactly in, in the case of health you begin to see well what would happen if we had a better feedback mechanism for signaling our, our time and our resources and our trade between one another i.e bitcoin and what if that you know what would that impact be on the businesses that are produced and the time preference of those businesses and how they stewarded their resources and how those resources produce goods that had a different impact on the human body. And you begin to see how just like that, that change on the base layer goes from basically inspiring or fostering or incentivizing a very destructive system, both for the natural environment and for the environment that is the human body to one that could foster and incentivize a far more harmonious and, and generative or productive relationship between the two. And so one manifestation of this is, you know, the regenerative agriculture or, or farming or ranching movement mm. is gaining a lot of traction um, amongst yeah. Bitcoin people because it's seen as one, treating the environment differently, not maximizing yield, not destroying the soil, not, not abusing animals, but doing it in a way that actually regenerates the environments, enriches the soil, provides a better life for animals. And then the food that comes from that approach is far more vital, is far more sustaining, is far more healthy, is far more conducive to a strong and optimized life. And, you know, and I think that's happening in many different domains. And so it's just another one of those, you know, you meant you use the term beautiful before. That's another reason why I think Bitcoin is is so beautiful because it's, yeah. it's bringing us back and to your point, bring us back to a more natural relationship with, all the different constituent components of life. And I think there is a lot of wisdom in the past that we maybe forgot or we were convinced was no longer necessary in the name of progress, technological progress exactly. or, or, yes. or yeah. market develop, you know, developments. And now we're looking, reassessing and being like, maybe we shouldn't have been so hasty in dismissing that. Maybe, you know, those things were the way they were because for many, many, many years, they were proven to be effective or healthy or promoting of, of something that we would deem positive. And we were kind of tricked into pursuing different forms of sustenance mm -hmm. or different forms of living. And I think now with That's this lens funny. of truth that Bitcoin represents, we're all beginning to reassess that. And what do you know, when you reassess it and you start experimenting or adopting, you know, a different set of behaviors, let's say, broadly speaking, 
there seems to be a lot of benefits in doing that. And that just puts more fuel on the fire to, to continue to engage in that process. Exactly. For instance, uh, what is being very convincing to me is I see kind of the evolution of the interviews in Bitcoin. Because, for instance, when I saw you, your, it was one where you interview about the, the cattle. Some, they were mm -hmm. describing how in the United States you are a force um, by the financial model to produce this distortion in terms of farming and farming wasn't sustainable and how they were proposing a different. That was a, a program long, long ago, maybe mm -hmm, a couple mm -hmm. of years ago. And I thought it was fascinating to see these young boys so aware about how distorted it was the market in terms of this industrial meat. And, and I thought, and they are forcing us because the dynamic that, that you are trapping as farmer. So then this, this kind of uh, changes in, the, in terms of going from talking about financial things and going into all the aspects of society in order uh, to change different practices because are not conducive to the uh, our human potential to develop. It's just, just we're exactly. completely distorted in terms of our health, in mm -hmm. terms of our environment. And so I think the most beautiful part is that you see people going from, I want to have lots of money to, oh, maybe I have to think about changing my lifestyle. Maybe I have to include different practices, maybe becoming more ethical. I think that's fascinating, really, mm -hmm. because the changes are at personal level as well. So you don't wait for the macro to change in order to change yourself. So it's a parallel interaction. And that, I think, is reflected more and more in the Bitcoin community. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I love to hear, for instance, Michael Taylor, who he talks is. He is, you see a person who has some clarity in terms of what is good for humanity. So create, he creates a university in the context of American University, the Ivy Leagues and so on. He's able to create a free university. And for me, that's fascinating when you see people committed to that level. It's, it's fantastic, really. Yeah, no, I, I think that's very well said and i agree with that observation and again I, mean, I think there's many fascinating reasons for this but i think one also is just that you know bitcoin bestows a certain degree of freedom and i'm not just talking about number go up but like when you know that at least a portion of your stored resources your wealth is in a form yeah. that no one can take from you either directly or surreptitiously via inflation yes, yeah. you 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 it's a type of power or freedom or liberation that you actually feel and i feel like the more you feel that the more your own concerns are dialed down and the more you become available to consider things beyond yourself yes, you know whether it's yeah. educating people it's whether it's your own ethics and morality and how that that should be developed and applied to the world what but broadly speaking like compassion empathy and generosity i think yeah. they get yeah. elevated when when you start to feel the effects of that bitcoin is taking hold on you and you know bitcoin is not the only mechanism of doing that but it seems to be a, a very common or reliable mechanism for doing that perhaps yeah. in 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 the the most profound or pronounced way it is not but is the economic dimension giving access to the spiritual dimension not religious right. spiritual dimension which is mm -hmm. fascinating Very. it hasn't been done before yeah extremely fascinating and that's a, a deep rabbit hole in itself that i, I like yeah, to explore yes. sometimes um 
what just so we can finish the chronology aspect yes. when did you uh take the orange pill you know when did this start making sense to you and well and, i and i, I must, change your perspective? Uh, i must uh, give credit to my son because uh i mean i couldn't grasp even the concept of bitcoin for my generation is not easy most mm. of my colleagues there are academics or intellectuals or very well-educated people with all kinds of postgraduate courses. Uh, they, for instance, take for granted that cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin is the same. They don't know the difference. Mm -hmm. So then at the beginning, I was like, what is this Bitcoin? And I was not figuring out basic things. And I was also scared because it was so totally new that I thought I will never grasp this thing. And be scared of maths. If you don't are not familiar with maths, it's even more scary. So then, until my my son started to put the money there, and he said, "No, let's save this way." Let's say, and the reasons he gave me were very convincing. And then he said, "You have to study and learn and to to be able to understand why it's important this movement and why this is really an alternative." So slowly, with all these different approaches that I had had. And the experience I had in development, I could see that this was the alternative. Definitely, yeah. And when but when I must say that? that my son had to explain a lot, a lot of basic things. Sure, to sure. Me. When when was that? Was uh, that was no, no, like maybe four years ago. Something, not even five years ago, yeah. You know, it's funny, you, you brought up Sailor a few times and and you mentioned how uh, much you enjoyed the Breed Love and the Sailor series. So yeah. my, in my, with my own mom, of course, for many years, I yeah. was attempting to explain the merits of Bitcoin and, you know, just it's it's really hard. Like you don't get it, you don't get it, you don't get it until you get it. And then it's like the most obvious thing in the world. That's kind of what Bitcoin, understanding Bitcoin is like. But in any case, you know, I tried for many years and, and wasn't really making much headway. And then uh, I... And what is your name, Alex? Alex is Besky, the one you interview, said yeah. the same about his sister and his mother, isn't it? Oh, really? I, I, I don't recall, but... It, it is, it, it's called Alex Svetsky, yeah, no? Yes, the, yeah, Alex Svetsky. I When you were interviewing him... Manifesto, yeah. Yes, when you were interviewing him, he, he was also mentioning that, well, the mother and the sister didn't get it at all. <laughs> but the thing that, that finally got my mom over the edge was yeah. Sailor. You know, so she, because I think she saw my first interview with him and she thought he was yeah. a little bit too oddball y, you know, a little bit too exuberant, perhaps. Um, but then, you know, I did a second one with him and he obviously has done, uh, you know, many with many people. Yeah. And for whatever reason, she, you know, she really, she started to see it based on the way he was explaining it. Maybe it was his delivery, his, his depth of knowledge and how he can pull together so many different things to help contextualize and explain Bitcoin. Yeah, it is but amazing. Yeah. I just thought it was funny that, you know, she she was basically orange pilled by Sailor too. So I, I wonder how many people out there in your guys's demographic basically that, you know, maybe should be listening to more more Michael Saylor. Maybe that would help with the understanding. Well it it helps, but he's uh, uh he's very complex. He's, uh, he puts together fields that are just incredible how how he makes the he makes the synchronicity of so many areas. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, he's fantastic in how he makes accessible this information. But I think he's very far away from, at least women in my generation, we don't understand what he's 
talking about at all because it's a it's important the image for instance i was seeing i think he was invited as a keynote speaker in with one lady from brunel i think is her surname she's from Natalie. the media in united states yeah. yeah and i thought how unfortunate because this girl doesn't uh, resembles at all the values we want to portray or the i'm i'm a fan of uh lena for instance i think she's so solid so incredible so impeccable this girl but then when you put the other and i thought mm, this is very much the fiat image that i have about the all this uh fiat society and for us it's very strong the media in the united states is the, mm. the stereotype of the media we reject it as soon as I don't know if that might be valid for Latin America because we yeah. don't identify with the Barbie type. We hated Barbie type because for us is the outcome of the capitalist society, you see, and has yeah. destroyed all the other images of women. So then, <laughs> then, then it's very difficult for us to to go beyond the the stereotype of images, isn't it? That, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. the one who brings the message. Well, this is important, this... but I I think the most sorry, yeah. No, sorry, you finish. Yeah, no, I just think that uh, the women and the the men also, but mainly women in the United States or in the north, global north, I don't expect that much because they have a very comfortable life. They don't see the the problems of this fiat society, and we are as women, we are so much programming, take advantage of that society and we mm -hmm. have learned very professionally to manipulate men that are in power but mm -hmm. if you see now the community needs women testimonies of women like Lynn Alden that are talking solid in a solid way that mm -hmm. are I mean for me she's just fantastic in the sense that she's very serious about her information she's concerned about providing and making accessible some very complex information for most women but I really and genuinely believe that the adoption in Latin America will be through women because they are in need. Uh, the yeah. global north is not. The women are adorable. Maybe your mom can grasp that. But it's not that they have the need to adopt Bitcoin. In the global yeah. south, we are desperate to get it. You see, that's sure. the difference. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm open. I, I have no argument with the, you know, with the argument that people in the global south are in more desperate need of a solution like this than perhaps in the North, but also I don't want to, you know, use too broad a brushstrokes in characterizing everyone in the North in a, exactly. in a similar way, exactly. because there's, yeah. there's a lot of women, a lot of men, a lot of young people, a lot of old people, uh, a lot of people from all different races in the North that are having a very, very difficult time contending with this system as it's currently constructed. And for whom well, Bitcoin to can be, be honest, such a the worst poverty benefit. is in the northern countries. The worst poverty. Well, I, and, I, I witness it. Yeah. Yeah. Because and they, they, and there's even, no one there to support you. And even so, this is this is why it's so interesting. Like, if you're just saying, looking at the resources that people have available to them, may you know the person in Mozambique has way less than the person in, you know. Uh, you know, uh, urban Los Angeles, who's, you know, yes. extremely poor, but the, rel the the way that's felt in relative terms to the people who you're surrounded by 
can actually make the circumstance of the person who's relative to the Mozambique person more quote unquote wealthy. But yeah. when you look at all the different parameters of health, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, all these things, they seem to be suffering almost more in a sense, you know, and so, there's, yeah. there's a lot wrapped up in that. But I, I just wanted to make yeah. the point that I think, you know, there's people everywhere that obviously, well, everyone is going to maybe ultimately need Bitcoin, but there's certainly people struggling everywhere. And just, you know, I, I know Natalie, and she's a wonderful um, person. And, and one of the things that I always say about um, people producing content in, in Bitcoin, let's say, yeah. whenever someone comes, because, you know, there's a million podcasts. So on the one hand, it's like, well, do we really need another podcast? But whenever someone messaged me and says, <laughs> like, I really want to do this, you know, what should I do? I'd say, just do it because there are so many different types of people in this world and different yeah. forms of communication, different representations of your who you are appeal to different people like Michael Saylor and Lynn and Natalie and myself and Rob, there'll be some overlap in who we appeal to, but also our unique forms of communication and who we are as individuals will appeal to different people differently. And my main interest is making sure that the signal, right? The Bitcoin signal is getting to as many people as possible. And this is part yes. of the work you're doing as well. And so I'm happy, you know, I, I don't, I have my own preferences, of course, but I'm happy to see that all these people are able to package the Bitcoin message or signal yeah, but, but in, in a manner that appeals. Audiences. Exactly. For different exactly. audiences. I think yeah. uh, I agree totally with you, but the problem is nobody's taking care of this, uh, I would say, of the poorest segments of the population because the people who attract now the different publics and audiences are the people who are mainly from the global north and yep, in the mainly. south I, I have it but it, that's not a problem in itself it's just that i think it's, it's kind of a bubble where many things are happening very intense and fantastic but that won't be valid for the poorest uh, segments of the population in latin america that's what sure. i'm trying to say mm -hmm. and then i see the urgency of going and research what's going on there, what solutions they propose, what, how are they perceiving this fantastic movement? Because they might not even see it. That's my concern. They might not even see it. When it's just a, well, a, sure. a one in a lifetime opportunity, that's the way I feel it. <laughs> well, no, I agree with you, but that's what's also beautiful. I mean, that's at least in part what's inspired you to do what you're doing, right? And that's, a, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I've spoken to a bunch of people um, that live in Africa, Nigeria, Togo, you know, places that yes. are yeah. um, suffering a lot from the, the issues we've been discussing. And they have taken up the mantle of educating people in their circumstance, you know? So one of yes. the things I, I, I often remind myself with all this is, you know, it's not going to happen on the timeline that I would want. It's just, I, who knows yeah, how this is going to yes. happen. And what I'm encouraged by is that the more I do my thing, the more you do your thing, the more Lynn and Natalie and Rob and all them do their things. It's just, expanding the surface area of the message so that at one point maybe it reaches the kid in the small town in Nicaragua you know maybe he he listens to a podcast and it inspires him and he says hey how come nobody's sending this message in my town and then yes. he becomes the one who does it and who more capable than than crafting a message for the people that are in his cir circumstance and so that's how i see this playing out but of course you know, you and I would probably want everyone to, to grok this tomorrow so we can just get on with living, you know, the Bitcoin renaissance. But, uh, you know, that's not how, how life works. So 
a certain degree of patience is is perhaps uh, part of that humility we were discuss the, discussing earlier. Yes, yeah. Um, and and we have to make sure that we include the people who are more disadvantaged to access this information. That's from my side, mm -hmm. because some people are are unable to grasp this information. So I always felt like it's the same example of my work I did with health. I mean, for instance, I left Mexico 40 years ago, come back, and be known enough, but come back, and then the maternal mortality is the same when we have all the knowledge to prevent maternal mortality. But the social conditions didn't change or got worse. So that's what I'm worried about mm -hmm. because the, the women's situation is not... Uh, benefiting for all this so-called progress and women are deteriorating more and more and then you see well they they are the ones at the center of a sexual and reproductive health they have their own problems and nobody's paying attention because they don't mean anything financially mm -hmm. so then I'm, I'm concerned about how do i with all this knowledge that we have in the medical or biomedical field give access to these women for safe maternity, for instance, for a safe delivery. So that's very clear when you see statistics from the global north and the global south. Sure. Yes, you have poverty in the States, but you will never... I mean, the States is an incredible example because it's the worst health system you can find in the world, I think, you see, because has left... At the time I was working in Washington, it was more than 8 million children without access to any type of health care. Mm -hmm. which is an incredible for such a wealthy country. So. Mm -hmm. But, but I mean, we have in the North and in the South different realities, and we have to be able to, to see how we reach these most vulnerable groups of people, because they are the ones who need this going, actually. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, there's always the point that the world has more problems than you have time to solve them. So you have to be, <laughs> yes. you know, you have to to pursue the one that inspires you the most. And that's all of our responsibility to yeah. do that. But uh, certainly I, I take your point. And so maybe the, the, the best place to close this out is, um, I know Daniel mentioned a few potential projects to me that you guys might be working on, but how do you see your role or involvement in Bitcoin moving forward in terms of you know, as we just said, yeah. a multitude of options and, and things you could do. Where do you want to most place your focus and, and how are you well, doing that so, currently? So far, it's a, there is an interesting community, especially where I am now here in Yucatan. There is a lot of people uh, from the from different countries. It's, a, a, I would say, a large international community of young people that I think they could help in order to spread this information locally so that we could create kind of a model. Uh, they are having a meeting at the end of April, I think it is, in one of the beaches here, Cisal. So like uh, in Mexico, Bitcoin is going to enter through the tourism because that's, that's the easiest way. So we want to create the conditions for the people that come start to introduce Bitcoin as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. So instead of going through rules and regulations on just as a matter of fact, creating one cafe that adopts, one restaurant that right. adopts it. And then it started through that, uh, convincing local people who have very little uh, kind of uh, well, shacks, shops, different kind of ways to, to for income generating activities in general, how they could link to this Bitcoin 
uh, international community so that through tourism maybe they can start to to change their mentality and adopt and through the these uh, groups the adoption means a lot of education and a lot of research in order to try to solve the practical barriers they experience while adopting bitcoin that's how i see you now it's a lot of work but i yeah, think i want a, to do it <laughs> yeah it, it is a lot of work but it's an incredibly noble effort and you know i i, I spent a lot of time with the guys from bitcoin beach in el salvador and okay. you know that's that's basically what they did you know and when they set out they certainly didn't know that they were going to get all this attention and el salvador was going to make bitcoin legal tender you know they were doing and they didn't know they have the notoriety they now have and the options and the opportunities and all that kind of stuff. They yeah. just knew that this would be something that has the potential to be good for their community. To be good for the community. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's why they started educating and propagating it. And, you know, obviously it turned out to be a big success, not without its problems and issues like anything, but um, it, it's a, it was amazing to me. And we actually made a documentary about it, how a small seed like that, you know, just a few people wanting yeah, to do so the good by their community. Yes. No, well, well, this this one we haven't uh, we haven't released yet. Haven't? Uh, uh, I, I know there's been a I few about it. it. Was, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you when it when it comes okay, out. Okay, okay, would be very but nice because I think a, El Salvador is a lesson learned that we have to study carefully. I agree for for both the things that yes, went well yeah. and and the things that that didn't go so well. Yes, yes. But all the only point you know my point is just it's so amazing it was so amazing to me that few people doing attempting to do something good for themselves and their community ended up catching fire in that way. And I think that it speaks to the power of, you know, those intentions, you know, that type of altruism when combined with this technology that, that we know as, as Bitcoin. And so I think, yeah. as you say, that'll happen in a lot of smaller places around the world, a lot of un, un, underserved forgotten places, and hopefully it will have continue to have a, a positive effect. So I, uh, so we hope so, but Mexico is so complex that Salvador is not even as big as one of our states, sure, Nuevo León, sure. Monterrey. So sure. it is, it, but it, it's a different ballgame. Very different. But I think if we if we are very careful in in documenting and learning from the experiences is that have been implemented in different parts of the world, we could uh, we could continue to to gather knowledge in terms of how to to take the advantage of this historical opportunity and at the same time to see what is there and what we need to create mm -hmm. in order to make it possible yeah i i couldn't agree more with that um mercedes this has been thank awesome. you so much thank, john th thank you thank for you your so time much. it was well, thank you was, for your time it was Did fun you have to any, talk to you <laughs> and you and you did you have any final thoughts, closing words, or anywhere you wanted to direct anybody before we close it down this time? Well, no, I think uh, if, if you come to Mexico, all, all the people that have been already with more experience like you, at the end of April could be very nice because it could be very enlightening to exchange your experience and your ideas could be very helpful for us. Well, I don't know if it'll be the end of April this year, if that's what you're suggesting, but I definitely need to make uh, the trip at some point and would love to connect with uh, people doing the most good, welcome. good work You're when the I most go welcome. there. But thank you okay. so much. And thanks again for your time and your openness. And thank hopefully you we for, speak again for in the, the future. Invitation.
Okay, stay well and I wait for you here in Mexico. Okay, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Oh, oh, oh.